You need a means by which you will remain steadfast and by which you will persevere, by which you will honor Christ. You need a means by which you will lead your family and raise your children with the resolute confidence that God's way is the only way and it is the best way, whatever the cost. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Living in Light of the Mountain from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is found in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, in which the prophet Isaiah records a vision of God's sacred dwelling place established upon the highest of all mountains to which the nations shall flow. Isaiah calls upon the people of God to repent and walk in the paths of the Lord in light of this coming mountain. Isaiah recorded this prophecy some 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, how can Isaiah's ancient vision inform us today on the way in which we ought to live life now to the glory of Christ? And how can Isaiah's prophecy of old teach us today on the way in which we ought to interact with others as ambassadors of Christ? Let's consider those questions as we hear part one of Pastor Paul's two-part series called Living in Light of the Mountain. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. We'll be in Isaiah 2 this morning. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the word of the Lord reads, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So reads the word of the living God. Florence Chadwick loved to swim. She grew up on the beach. She began competitive swimming at the age of six. She was the first woman to swim across the English Channel both ways. Chadwick was 34 years old when on July 4th, 1952, she attempted to become the first woman to swim the 21 miles across the Catalina Channel from Catalina Island to the California coast. The weather that day was challenging. The fog was thick. She could only see a few feet in front of her. The tides and the current were against her. And then, to make matters worse, there were sharks in the area. But at daybreak, she decided to go for it anyway, expecting the fog to lift. Hour after hour, she swam. The fog never lifted. 
There were patrol boats following her, and rifles were being shot into the water to scare away the sharks. Her mother and her trainer were continually encouraging her to keep going. It was at about the 15-hour point that she began to doubt herself. She began to doubt her ability to finish the swim, and she told her mother she didn't think she could make it. After nearly 16 hours of swimming, she stopped. The support crew took her out of the water, and what the fog had prevented her from seeing was that the coast was in fact less than one mile away. She went on to say that if she had known how close the coastline was, she could have finished. Every day we all make decisions. We often make decisions based upon that which we do not know. We often make decisions out of ignorance, rather than making decisions based upon something we know. On July 4, 1952, Florence Chadwick decided to stop swimming. It was a decision based upon what she did not know. And I use that story just to illustrate the simple point that when we do know what lies ahead, then we are better informed to make decisions in the present. When we do know what lies ahead of us, we are better informed to live and to make decisions in the present. The Bible draws on this same logic. I think often upon the familiar verse in 1 John chapter 3 that says, "When He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is." And then John writes, "Everyone who has this hope purifies himself, as He is pure." Now, notice the logic of his argument. He's saying, "He shall appear, and we shall see Him, and we shall be like Him as He is." And, and if you know this one truth, then there are implications for the present. If you believe in the truth that we shall see Him and be like Him, then you'll purify yourself in the here and now. It's the logic that when we are informed about the future, then we are better equipped to make decisions in the present. Isaiah two shows us a mountain, a mountain of all things. It is a mountain at the end of salvation history. You'll see the the reference there in verse two to the latter days. This is a vision given to us. Of the end of salvation history, and it's given to us to equip us to better live in the present. The vision of Isaiah two is given to us to inform our thinking about the present. It's to help us think in biblical categories. The vision of Isaiah two is given to us so that we might reflect better on the call that is on our lives to live holy and distinct lives. It is given to us so that we might think through more carefully how we would interact with others as we are ambassadors of the Lord. The problem being that many Christians today do not think much beyond their immediate horizon. Many Christians today do not think rightly about the end. They are not biblically informed to make good decisions about the present. Indeed, for many Christians today. They have thought so little about the end, and they are so ill-informed that their worldview, the way in which they live and reason and think and decide, could only really be labelled as secular. In a sense, it's the same problem that existed in Isaiah's day, as he spoke to the people of God, Israel. Chapter two follows chapter one, and in the first chapter of this book, we see that the prophet speaks clearly to the issue. He rebukes God's people for their choices. 
He shows them how they have failed to honor the Lord, and and he paints a very dark picture of their condition. At the end of a, a difficult chapter, we then move into Isaiah 2, and we see the people of God gathered on the holy mountain. So think of that. In in chapter 1, we read of a people that are being compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we turn the page into chapter 2, and now the people are gathered on the holy mountain. It seems at first that maybe these two chapters don't belong back to back, but we can resolve the tension. What Isaiah wants to do is use this vision of chapter 2 to exhort the people of God to correct living in the present. He wants to use it so that they would be better informed to live their lives in a way that the Lord is honored, understanding the reality of that which is to come. They make changes in the present. The vision of Isaiah chapter 2 is supposed to provide a corrective to God's people. And as we consider this passage this morning, we must allow it to function in the same way for us. We must allow the reality of what is to come to provide an exhortation to us. We must allow the reality of what is to come to correct our lives where things are not what they should be. We must allow the reality of that which is soon to come to inform the way in which we live life now. And so with the time that we have this morning, I want to simply gaze at this mountain. I want to gaze as if we were spectators in an art gallery. We're walking through the art gallery, and here we are at a painting of a mountain, of God's holy mountain. And this morning, we can make at least three observations concerning this mountain that would then inform our worldview for today. The first observation, quite simply, is that the mountain is established. Look again at the text. Verse 2 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, it may seem odd to you that the mere establishment of a mountain can in any way provide confidence, exhortation, challenge, rebuke for the people of God. The mere establishment of the mountain may not be that significant in your thinking. In order to appreciate the full significance of this mountain, We need to think of it and and particularly how it relates to the rest of Scripture. Isaiah did not write in a vacuum. He knew the Scriptures and he knew redemptive history that had been played out thus far, and so must we. And so as we think about the mountain imagery, we are led all the way back to Eden and the fact that the Garden of Eden most likely sat on top of a mountain. Now, you may not have thought of that before, and you may be asking, how how can I say that? How is it that it seems like the Garden of Eden sat on top of a mountain? Consider that in ancient Near Eastern literature, which is where we're operating when we open the Old Testament, sacred space, that is, space where God dwelt and met with his people, was often depicted as being high up on a mountain. Consider also that in the biblical narrative, in Eden, we see that there's a river flowing out. In Genesis 2, we read of a river flowing out of Eden. Well, by implication, the river must be flowing downwards. Rivers don't flow upwards. So it seems like as we read of a river coming out of Eden, the garden itself is at a point of elevation. The water comes out and down. And then consider that in Ezekiel 28, The prophet speaks to the king of Tyre, and he says, 
you were in Eden, you were on the holy mountain of God. The two are set in parallel, and all the evidence seems to point towards the fact that Eden, the garden, was set high up on top of a mountain. What this means is that as mankind sinned and he was expelled from the garden, he was pushed out to the east and he was also pushed downwards. As mankind left the garden, he was forced to descend the mountain. And from there on, we can trace throughout Scripture a storyline pertaining to mountains. In fact, Genesis itself offers a fascinating geographical study. There's lots of movement in Genesis eastward, further from the garden, and downwards. The book ends, of course, with the people of God going down to Egypt. That's theologically significant. Concerning the mountain, we understand that God's people, who had been forced to descend the mountain for the rest of redemptive history, are straining to get back up on top of the mountain. God's people have it in their hearts to be back in the dwelling place of God, back in the sacred space, and that is to ascend the mountain. God, on his part, has promised to bring his people back, to bring them back to the fullness of his dwelling. And so what we see as we trace through Scripture is that there are many acts of salvation that are worked out on top of a mountain. To give you an example, after Genesis 3, sin explodes. We read that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, and so God wipes the slate clean. God starts over again with an act of judgment. He brings a universal flood. It is an act of judgment, but at the same time, it's an act of salvation. It's an act of salvation because he preserves a family. He kept back a family in order to start again. But from where did he start again? It was from a mountain. He landed the ark on the mountain of Ararat. Some commentators suggest that the mountain of Ararat is right where the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates met, such as this seems like it may even be back at the location of the garden. God starts over again in Genesis 8 on a mountain. And then after that, it doesn't take long before mankind is up to his wicked ways. And so in Genesis 11, we get the Tower of Babel incident. Now remember, in the hearts of mankind, there is a desire to ascend the mountain, to get back up to the top of the mountain. And so in Genesis 11, the people of God build this structure of elevation. The problem is that they're doing it without any proper reference to God. They want to reclaim the benefits of God without actually having God himself. And thus the Lord scatters them across the face of the earth. In Genesis 22, we read of Abraham being instructed to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. This is an episode that is loaded with redemptive significance and latent with salvation theology. It ratifies the covenant between God and Abraham. It prefigures the Passover of Israel and it points forward to the sacrifice of Christ himself. But did you notice where it all occurs? On a mountain, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided, reads the text. And from there, we move into Exodus and and we encounter the mountain of all mountains, and that is Sinai. Now, the Sinai narrative is fascinating. We tend not to turn to Leviticus in our quiet times. We prefer to be in Philippians, I know. But the Sinai narrative forms the absolute centerpiece of the Pentateuch. It all resolves around what happens up on Sinai. And there's many things we could say, but simply to note for our purposes this morning, there are three points of elevation marked out on the mountain. 
the lowest, the base, that is where Israel dwelt. The midsection, which is, is the point to which the elders could ascend. And then the summit, covered in a cloud, into which only Moses could enter. And what is it that happens at Sinai? The law goes out. Now remember that point. It will be significant for our text today. The people come down from the mountain. And then they become a wandering people. That's the book of Numbers. But God has given them a tabernacle. And what do we notice about the design of the tabernacle? We notice that there are three areas marked out. There is the outer court. There is the holy place. And there is the holy of holies covered by a cloud into which only the high priest could enter. And what is it that sits at the center of the tabernacle? It is the law, the stone tablets. So we see that there are strong parallels between the tabernacle and the mountain. Now, what is the point of all of this? Ever since Eden, God's people have been striving to get back up the mountain. And God has been moving redemptive history forward via a series of mountains. He has been moving forward redemptive history using mountains as an assurance to the people. He uses mountains to say, I am at work. I do have a plan for you, and I am going to bring you back to the fullness of my dwelling place. Much the same as a parent would encourage a child. Just this summer, our daughter tried to learn how to swim and how to ride her bike. She came to me after we'd made this decision, and she said, Dad, I think I might have taken on too much. I said, Darcy, you can do this. And sure enough, she learned how to ride her bike in no time, and the swimming, well, she would get into the pool, and I would be standing there with my hands out, and she would flap and swim, and, and as she got closer, I'd just take a step back. And then she gets closer, and i just take a step back with the hands out, just as a means of encouragement that she's moving forward and she can do this. God has been moving through redemptive history via a series of mountains, to encourage his people and say, keep pressing on. I will bring you back. And though the image of the mountain doesn't necessarily factor much in our thinking of the gospel and salvation history, you need to understand just how ingrained this theology was to the mind of the Israelite. Just how ingrained it was to the thinking of the standard Israelite. When we turn to the, the Psalms, we read in Psalm 15 and 24, who can ascend the holy hill? And we think of those Psalms in terms of asking the question, who can be right with God? And, and it is asking that question, but it's so much more than that. It has a, a forward force to it. It's asking the question, ultimately, who will be there on the last day with God? Who can ascend the mountain? Who will be present with him on the last day? And notice the logic of the psalmist when he then lists a lot of qualities that are to be played out in the present. When we're informed about the end, then we make good decisions in the present. We think about Jonah. Jonah's just been swallowed by a fish. When you think you're having a bad day, think upon Jonah. Did you ever notice how Jonah describes this act of judgment upon him? He's swallowed by a fish. And yet in Jonah chapter 2, he describes this act of judgment as being made to descend the mountain. He came down to the base of the mountain because Jonah, this normal Israelite, gets it. He has this theology built into his thinking. 
And we could go on and on and on to various other texts. With this background established, then we understand when we come to Isaiah chapter 2, a context wherein sin is abounding and other nations are rising up against God's people and their future from their perspective is somewhat uncertain. Isaiah says, the mountain will be established. God will not fail to establish his mountain. You will dwell with him once again when all hope seems like it is lost. And not only that, but notice, this mountain is the highest of all mountains. It is raised up above all other hills. The term, the house of the Lord, has inherent kingly connotations to it. And so what we read here is an implicit reference to his royal residence and the victory of God over all other would-be gods. The victory of God over all other supposed rulers. His house, His house is lifted up above all other houses, all other mountains, and the people of God shall dwell with the Lord, and he will reign over every square inch of the earth. This morning, we read from Hebrews 12, because it employs the mountain concept. Now, in keeping with the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 uses the mountain imagery as an encouragement Lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. The author is saying, as throughout the rest of the book, keep going. Don't give up. Though you can't make sense of what's going on around you right now necessarily, it will come to pass that the Lord's promises will be fulfilled. You are nearly at the mountain, he says. Isaiah uses the same imagery, but in a different sense. Isaiah uses the mountain imagery more as a rebuke and as a challenge. Isaiah writes of this vision so as to reorientate their worldview. He says to the people of God, you are not focused on God. You are beginning to trust in other things. You are considering the ways of man. Consider the mountain. Consider the end game. Think well about what is soon to come to pass, and as you do so, it will bear fruit in the present. And so we must look at this passage in the same way today. To be sure, there is a comfort here as we set our minds on the things of glory. As we know that very soon these will come to pass, we can take encouragement and lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. We can press on to the glory of Christ, whatever it is that may be going on in our lives today. But at the same time, Allow this text to challenge your way of thinking. Know the end game. Focus on the mountain. Know that the mountain will be established and the people of God will be there with him. This should inform your thinking and inform your decisions. And you must know just how much you need this. At a time when there is so much opposition to the gospel in society, at a time when there is an ever-present temptation for the people of God to capitulate to the way of the world and deny the calling that is on your life to be holy and distinct. You need a means by which you will remain steadfast and by which you will persevere, by which you will honour Christ. You need a means by which you will lead your family and raise your children with a resolute confidence that God's way is the only way and it is the best way, whatever the cost. How do you navigate all of the issues of life The answer in large part is that you would develop a biblical worldview. 
You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Isaiah's ancient vision tells of the reality of our coming dwelling place with Christ, a reality that informs us on the way we ought to live life now. What encouragement this vision provides us still today. You know, there's always more to hear and ways to grow on our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. That's timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts, and there you'll find a treasury of Bible teaching on nearly every scriptural subject. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Listen tomorrow for part two, the conclusion in our short series, Living in the Light of the Mountain, from Pastor Paul. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.